Good afternoon, and welcome to another episode of the Worthy for 30 podcast. I am your host, Eric Tash. Today, and this afternoon, I have two guests, a first, a podcast first. I have Phil Shermer, who's the, the founder and CEO of Project Healthy Minds. And I have a returning guest, a friend, Aria Finger, who was the chief of staff to Reed Hoffman, who before she was working with Reed Hoffman, she was the CEO of DoSomething.org. And as I was talking to Phil when we first met, thank you to Jason Schulweiss, Phil brought me up to speed on all the great things that Project Healthy Minds was doing as a nonprofit health uh, tech startup. And I was thinking to myself, like, wait a minute, I know someone who also worked in this category of working with millennials and Gen Zs, getting them to be super advocates of specific causes. And I thought, okay, Phil, I really appreciate you coming on to the show. And I'd love to have Aria come on just based on her experience, again, working with the Gen Z and millennial population with regards to a myriad of the causes and campaigns that she and her team championed while she was the CEO of Do Something. Again, really appreciate both of you being here. The way I like to kick it off is for Phil, love to, again, get a background from you in terms of Project Healthy Minds and what got you to start and found and put yourself on this journey to grow Project Healthy Minds with regards to mental health awareness. Well, Eric, first, thank you for having me and thank you for convening this conversation and shout out to Jason Schulweiss, the ultimate connector in New York City of good people. So let me, let me wind it back about four years to when the origin story for Project Healthy Minds really began in the coffee shop in New York City. I have been doing work in the music and social impact space since I was in college. I had built a music tech arts festival that was combined with a nonprofit incubator where we used the money from the festival of a seed fund nonprofit startups. And it's not Coachella. It's called Music Matter. It's not Coachella, but it is a 10,000 person festival. And the headliners have been like J. Cole, Amigos, and 2 Chains and Common. I ended up in this conversation with two friends of mine, Chris and Harry, who manage a bunch of well-known musicians, one of whom is this hip-hop artist by the name of Logic. And they told me a story over breakfast that inspired the creation of Project Healthy Minds, which was this. Logic released a song in April of 2017. The title of the song, is the phone number of the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, the 1-800 number. And the song is about Logic's own struggle with mental health. And it was him effectively like coming out about his own journey. And the song I knew extremely well as just a fan and a friend. It had gone seven times platinum. It was nominated for two Grammys, Song of the Year, Music Video of the Year. So I don't think you could open up a Spotify and not listen to the song. What I learned over this breakfast was the day that song was released, the suicide hotline saw the second highest call volume in its history behind the death of Robin Williams. A few months later, he performs that song at the MTV Video Music Awards. There's a 50% spike in call volume to the hotline. A few months after that, he performs it as the closing set at the Grammys. There's a 300% spike in call volume to the hotline. And then when we hit the one-year mark of the song release, so April of 2018, the hotline published a report showing that call volume was up 30% year over year since the day the song had been released. And in fact, about nine or 10 months ago, there was a study published in the British Medical Journal showing that it didn't just lead to an increase in call volume, it actually led to a significant number of lives saved. So Chris and Harry tell me the story and I'm blown away. And partially because of my tech and marketing background, the way that I heard them tell the story was that the song was acting like a marketing tactic for the hotline, right? It was this like simple mechanic in many respects. Young people heard an aspirational role model that they looked up to, effectively coming out of the closet about his own mental health journey, pulling an issue that had sat in the shadows for so long out into 
the mainstream. And it was inspiring all these people to call the hotline and ask for help. And as interesting as the spikes were, what was actually even more interesting was the fact that it was sustained over the course of a full year, that 30% year-over-year increase. That's extremely rare. You don't see stuff like that. Sometimes you see increases here or there, but you rarely see something that is a durable mechanic like that. And so I came off the breakfast and I was, I was at the time 27, I'm now 31. I felt then as I do now that there is this pervasive loneliness among pretty much everyone my age. It doesn't matter if you work in the nonprofit world or finance or tech or Silicon, no matter what your background is, entertainment in LA, you have a lot of young people who are burned out at work, not finding quite as much purpose as they hope to, and trying to basically figure out their way in the world. And on Instagram, it looks like everyone's happy, and yet they don't feel like they necessarily have it all figured out. And so that was what was in the back of my mind. And so when Chris and Harry told me the story, my spidey sense started to go off. I was like, this has to, these two things have to relate. There's no way that everybody my age is basically talking about mental health, but without using the words mental health. And on the same hand, on the other hand, you have all these people who are calling the hotline asking for help. So I came off the breakfast and I went on this very long research journey. I'll be honest in saying I only knew mental health through a personal lens and a social lens. I had never studied it as a public health or macroeconomic issue, but I had taken time off college to work in the Obama White House and the economic policy team and have remained pretty involved in those circles. And so I thought well, I could study this like I've studied any other public health or policy, public policy issue in my life. So I go on this long research journey. And what I basically find is you've got 615 million people worldwide with a mental health condition, 65 million Americans. That's four times the number of people diagnosed with cancer in America. And 60% of those people, six and 10, don't get any form of mental health care. And when you drill down to understand what's driving the treatment gap, the literature shows that there's three primary drivers. One is the stigma. Two is that people don't know where to go to get help. It's a discoverability issue. And then the third is about the cost of care. We don't have enough providers and then health insurance doesn't cover what it needs to. And the combination makes the cost of care way too high. And so at that point realized that if you thought about the logic song, it was actually this amazing public health case study for how you close the treatment gap. You had the 28 year old hip hop star coming out of the closet about his own mental health journey, creating the permission structure for others to do the same, destigmatizing the issue. And the title of the song was the phone number of where you could call to get help, which solved the discoverability issue. People didn't know where to go to find healthcare services. And the key was when you did those two things in tandem, you saw skyrocketing rates of help seeking behavior. So that's basically how we started. And at that point we realized that there was something, there was a model here that we could replicate. And that if we could basically take world-class marketing communications from the private sector and pair it with culture makers at scale. What I knew from doing all this music work for 11 years was there's no health issue more prevalent among musicians and the whole creative class than the issue of mental health. So if you compare those two things together, and if you could build, if you basically take tech to solve the discoverability issue, take the aggregator discovery marketplace model, the open table, the resi, the Expedia, but apply it to the mental health category, but across the whole spectrum of services, from meditation to therapy, psychiatry, peer-to-peer -peer support, community support groups, crisis lines, the idea being that whether you want a digital tool or an in-person service, there could be one front door on the internet for finding mental health services vetted by clinicians, but free for the public to use. If you did that and you paired it with all these culture makers, you could take the lesson of the logic song and take it out to scale. So that's how we started.
That's a, it's a, it's a, an incredible background. And Aria, looking at you and understanding again your background in terms of working with Do Something from 2003 to 2020, I think is when you left to, to work with Reed. This, some of the, what Phil is talking about in terms of this discoverability, back to our conversation, where we were talking about young people wanted to help, but they didn't know where to help with the issues that Do Something was championing. What's your perspective, again, based on what Phil is saying in terms of, of mental health resources and how to help? There's one that destigmatization, but it's also pairing that with the discoverability and making it super easy. So I'd love to hear from your perspective, some of those early challenges that you and your team face at Do Something, and perhaps there's some insight or some perspective that you can share with how Phil and his team are building a Project Healthy Mind. Yeah, I'd agree with Phil 100%. It's like a hidden crisis. It's like hiding in plain sight. It affects all of these young people. Whenever we talk to young people, like mental health would come up again and again as a number one issue that they really care about. And actually, our journey into this was a discovery one as well. We texted with 3 million young people every Tuesday. And in a horrible turn of events, a girl started texting us saying that she was being abused by her father. We would text her about volunteer and she would say, I'm being beaten. My father is abusing me. And we were like, whoa, like clearly this girl had nowhere to go because she was texting this faceless organization that was talking to her about the volunteerism and issues of the day. And so we started noticing that again and found that young people had nowhere to go when they were in crisis. And so actually out of Do Something, Phil, you've probably heard of it, we spun out Crisis Text Line as a way for young people who are more comfortable with text than with phone to actually text their way into a solution. And it wasn't long-term care. It wasn't a psychiatrist to see on a long-term basis. It was just, I'm in a moment of crisis, whether it's mental health, abuse, something, and I need care right now. And so we actually, at first we incubated Crisis Text Line within Do Something, and then we spun it out as own separate 501c3 Nancy Loveland, the CEO of Do Something, went to go run Crisis Text Line. I took over as the CEO of Do Something. And since then, they've, in terms of saving lives, they've made countless calls to 911 for people who are actively trying to commit suicide and figuring out how they can help young people save lives. And of course, that's the, you never want people to get to calling the crisis hotline or crisis text line. You don't want them to get to that point. Let's do prevention first. But for those who do get there, having, again, a technology solution that is widely available, that is free, that is destigmatized. I couldn't agree more. It's exactly what we need. If I can just jump in on that, I'll just say that the crisis text line model is actually one of the inspirations for this, that you have an amazing study in the crisis text line of how you can use technology to reinvent the delivery of crisis services. And if you just look at the last decade and the impact that they've had, it's extraordinary. And to, to us, that's the, we're solving an adjacent issue, but I think there is an incredible amount to be learned from about how they built this in the mental health space. There aren't a lot of examples of tech nonprofit startups in the mental health space. I would say that might be the only one that, that I know that's gotten a scale. So speaking about tech and going back to the uh, the stat that you you mentioned, Phil, in terms of six out of 10 young people I have or can articulate that they have a mental health issue, but they don't know where to go. And you mentioned logic as, again, that, that tipping point of, okay, there's something there with, again, using pairing technology with destigmatizing as well as helping young people, your Gen Z millennials, find resources for a myriad of different mental health issues. Now that we're seeing there's upheaval in, in on social media, Twitter notwithstanding, there's skepticism from consumers and from end users about, okay, this person is partnering with this organization. 
I have some skepticism. Are, are they really authentically aligned with this organization? One, and there is a celebrity or an influencer who's partnering with Project Healthy Minds, or perhaps from your experience, Aria, how do you make sure that sort of activation is not just a flash in the pan, that there's sustainability, that conversation is going to continue to ensue whether or not that celebrity or influencers involved in the conversation. I'll jump in because we worked with celebrities all the time. And so both traditional celebrities, but also YouTube stars, creators, et cetera. And no surprise, it comes down to authenticity. I remember that day when the song dropped and we were like, whoa, like this is incredible. It was very obvious that some nonprofit didn't pay him $5,000 to write a song and make this happen. Like, it just was so genuine. And so that's what we saw as well. Like sometimes we'd be so excited that we'd get like the biggest star in the world to sign on for a PSA, but like their heart wasn't in it and their manager was making them do it. And they like tweeted one time, you could tell that it like was not what they were excited about. And then other times we'd see again, celebrities or with sort of Gen Z and millennials, it's often creators, YouTube stars, TikTok stars, you know, we, <laughs> this is actually a great story. We were doing a PSA. And uh, with the celebrity spokesperson came in and we were like, hey, we have this shirt for you to wear. And he was like, oh, I actually just wore the do something shirt you gave me last time. It's under my shirt. I have it here. And we were like, you saved the do something t-shirt that we gave you a year ago. And he was like, yeah. And so that's when you know that you're working with folks who have their heart in the right place. And I think that people get excited about that. You know what I mean? They don't want something glossy and pre-published. They want something that shows the true excitement of the person. And unfortunately with mental health, so many people could relate. So there's no shortage of people who have been on their own journey and can get involved. So that's been our experience. Yeah. I mean, from our perspective, I would echo everything. But one of the things that's interesting in our perspective, from our experience is we don't pay for any of our talent deals. Haven't paid a dollar, we'll never pay a dollar for any of our talent deals. And so there's really no reason why a creator or a celebrity or a business leader really ends up in a position where they're wanting to work with us, unless it's because they want to use their platform in some way to make a difference because they're not getting paid. And so we don't really have these situations where people don't have a connection to the issue, but they're getting paid some amount of money. And so they're trying to figure out how are they going to create content around it? This stuff, I'll give you a really good example. So when we on our is Chris Zeru, who is Logic's manager. And when we decided to go public and just announce what we were working on, this was very early days in Project Healthy Minds. It was in the middle of the pandemic. It was October of 2020. And Logic and I went on the Today Show together to talk about basically the impact for World Mental Health Day, talk about the impact of his song and how it inspired the creation of this whole nonprofit. And at the end of the interview, the interview was done by Carson Daly. And at the end of the interview, Carson made a comment to me. He said, hey, if there's anything that I can ever do to help, this issue is so close to my heart. And I said, I'm gonna take you up on that. And he said, I'm serious. I'm not joking. He's, Here's my email. Send me an email if you're serious and we'll find some time. And Carson Daly is now on our board of directors and Carson has been amazing. And it just goes to show you like there is, there are so many different ways in to mental health. There are so many different mental health stories and journeys. Not everybody has the exact same story. That's the beauty and power of it is that everybody comes to this issue from a slightly different perspective, but then there are common elements across that you don't even have to get into this whole world. Of how do I force some celebrity to talk about mental health? Everybody's got their own story. It's their own story. It's their sibling. 
it's their kid, it's their parent, it's their best friend. And they're not all stories of crisis too. They're also stories of success, but that there were times that were tough. So anyway, that's how we think. The times are tough. You know, everybody has their own mental health issue or more so journey. I don't say issue, but their journey. Like, again, they feel what you said, like they can articulate something that they're going through, but they don't necessarily want to deem it a mental health issue. Perhaps even that those stories or the anecdotes, again, are that common thread to someone else. I'm going through something similar, getting evoking a reaction from the people that they're talking to. Because again, at the end of the day, do something, Project Healthy Minds, you're creating a community of like-minded folks who are all looking to be of service and to give back and to work in this collective, this collective community to help one another. Again, it's the, I, I believe, again, opinion one, when you destigmatize an issue, it's based on the relatability of the issue. The stigma usually comes from ignorance. But if you're able to speak with someone who's able to articulate what they're going through, I'm like, wait a minute, that sounds similar to something that I've been going through. Okay. And so it's cool, cool, even again, to talk about this. Yes, it is because we're all human. We all have our Michigas, if you will, of going through life and, <laughs> and having that commonality with someone else. But the one thing that I would love to understand, and I think it's back to the conversation Phil, we had a month or two ago was the economic impact of mental health and especially the economic impact on mental health that is not specifically on corporations and businesses. Are you able to again articulate the, you said there, there's more money spent on mental health than, than cancer in the U.S. Just love to understand for the founders and the CEOs who are listening to us, what that, again, that financial impact could be if their employees aren't finding the resources that they need. Yeah. Maybe I can take a step back and give higher order view of this stuff because the there, there's also a piece to the nonprofit that's focused on taking a lot of the learnings of the climate movement the last 10 years, as it's gone from an issue being driven by activists to one that is much more adopted by corporate America. It's not to say there isn't greenwashing. Of course, there's a lot of greenwashing, but we've still made tremendous progress versus when I entered the workforce almost 10 years ago. And I spent the last 10 years, eight years really, at BlackRock and worked on a lot of the climate ESG stakeholder capitalism issues and watched the arc, essentially, of companies beginning to get their head around, does climate impact my business? Is this just, should I be engaged on climate issues because it's a moralistic imperative? Or should I be engaged in it because it's important to my bottom line? How do I measure the climate impact of my business? What do I actually do about it? Or do I just buy carbon offsets or do I actually change something about the core commercial operating model? What do I disclose? What is, you want transparency in the market? What do I actually have to do about it? Our thesis is essentially that mental health is on the same trajectory as climate, just a decade behind. And I think it, it follows the exact same path. Today, there is essentially no meaningful data being collected on workforce mental health by even huge public companies. You have the 1% of the data that really needs to be collected at an individual company level. And so the first body of work is like, how do you even create standards around data collection of workforce mental health? How do you measure burnout and mental health issues in a, in a workplace? Right now, a lot of companies are looking at the insurance claims or the utilization of their employee assistance program. But in, in, most people don't even know what an EAP is. It's this outsourced hotline that you can call that's offered by your health insurance company that, you know, the dirty little secret is between three and 5% of employees at most companies ever use it. And if you talk to those people, they oftentimes say, I probably will never call it again. It wasn't the greatest experience in the world. 
And so if you think about just the EAP as an example, if utilization rates go from 3% to 8%, is that a positive or is that a negative? Does that mean that more people are reaching out and getting help that need help? Or does it mean that the mental health of the workforce has gotten worse? It just demonstrates the limits of the, of the existing sort of data collection. You have this sort of arc of, you, first you need to be able to measure workforce mental health, then you need to define what does the playbook look like for companies in the same way that a lot of companies started on climate by just adding recycling and saying, oh, this is like this all we have to do. It's like, no, actually, recycling isn't enough. That's nice. But you actually have to look at like your supply chain and where you're getting your energy from and do, you have to do all these things. Same thing on mental health. Is licensing calm or headspace enough? Does that solve all your mental health issues? No, you actually have to have a whole program that looks at everything from both the benefits that you're offering, to the actual way that the workforce is trained, how the ways of working, all that sort of stuff. And then you need standardized disclosure. So all of that is to essentially say, if you take the biggest step back, there's a bunch of public economic research that shows that mental health costs businesses a trillion dollars a year in lost productivity. But you have this massive gap around how do you actually measure it at the corporate level and what do you actually do about it? And to us, that's the center of the ESG conversation is define, creating standards and defining what do you actually do in those respects. So to answer your question, Eric, is this an emerging priority for businesses? Yes. You go talk to any CHRO of any public company or the CEO, and it's pretty much the number one or two issue in every HR department, but companies are only at the very beginning of getting their head around. What do we actually do about it? We want to do more. COVID has brought this issue out of the shadows in a much greater way, but we don't know what it is that we're supposed to be doing about it. So we're just testing everything. We're licensing calm. We're giving two mental health days. We're increasing our therapy coverage from six visits a year to eight visits a year. But we don't know what it, all the things that we're supposed to be doing. We don't know if, the, if it's all working. We don't know if it's all we're supposed to do. What else should we do? Tell us. Right. It's, it's like, I don't know what to, like, what to do. Like, what is providing mental health resources to my employees? But again, it, the companies need to take a step back and understand <clears throat> if I don't provide mental health resources, what does that do to my workforce? Again, you mentioned burnout. Is it going to have an, an individual economic impact on that particular employee? Yes. But in the aggregate, it's also going to, again, lost productivity leads to lost profitability. So we definitely have to figure out, okay, what sort of additional resources we need to provide. But I think you bring up a very salient point, which is what do we need to do? What is the standard? Like, how do we create that standard? So yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's in, in the ESG world, that's about that's called materiality test. You basically have to figure out which issues, so on mental health, what are the things that companies can do to better support employee mental health that are material to the long-term financial performance of the company? If you can demonstrate that companies that measure these things and do these things outperform their competitors over time, then you've created tremendous nat natural economic leverage that it's a, sort of a natural incentive for companies to invest in. So that's the, I, I was born and raised in Pittsburgh. So I'm going to go back to my Pittsburgh roots for a minute. But I think as if you look at this from a little bit of a historical perspective, as we accelerate the shift from a manual labor-based economy to a knowledge economy, in a manual labor-based economy, you needed workers that were physically strong. Right, if you think about the factory or the mill. But in a knowledge economy, you need workers that are mentally strong and resilient, right? Burnout and mental health become fundamental economic threats to intellectual capital intensive businesses. And but that's not how most people think about 
the stuff. So that's why I think we're only in the bottom of the first inning of a very long game. If you look at the history, it took 100 years between the advent of factories to when we put our first worker safety laws into place in this country. And so that just gives you context on how many people had to suffer or get injured or die in the workplace before we had institutional change. I think we're at the very beginning of companies beginning to think about, okay, if our people really are the core asset of the company and the thing that drives our profitability, and they're all dealing with mental health in some form or another, we probably ought to invest in it. But what is it that we're supposed to be doing? And I don't disagree with Phil, but I will say I am very interested at the next 12 to 24 months and what those will bring. I think like over the last year or two with everyone fighting for talent, everyone increasing salaries, everyone increasing sick days, a lot of those things are being rolled back. And obviously my view is from the tech industry, which has been hit hardest by layoffs. And when the tech industry is no longer fighting for t- will some of these things be the first to be cut? I have a lot of friends who are in SaaS businesses selling into HR departments and they're just not in interested in sort of employee benefits anymore. And so I think you brought up a good point, Phil, is like everyone's throwing stuff at the wall and it like sounds nice, but like what actually matters and what's just not a nice to have. And I think that's going to be critical because otherwise, yeah, the second there's a recession or a layoff or a whatever, a lot of these things will go out the window, especially because I think A lot of them are short-term cost centers, but long-term profit drivers. And so when you're looking at things on a quarterly basis, it's easy for the CEO to say, ah, I got to hit my numbers. Things aren't looking good. Let's cut that piece. So I hope that's not the case, but I will be interested to see what the changes in the market are coming to. Absolutely. It's going to be, again, a very interesting progression and evolution. And speaking of that, Aria, I know Reid Hoffman in particular is focus right on the future of work, on what does work look like in the future. We'll have to understand some of the initiatives that you and he are working on from a nonprofit standpoint, perhaps analogous to what Phil is talking about in terms of mental health. What are some of those issues that you're seeing on the forefront that's impacting corporate America, especially as we talk about recession in 2023? So I'd say two of the things we're really interested in. One is just, as Phil mentioned, we're in a sort of a knowledge economy. So we should be in a skill-based economy, not a degree-based economy. With 70% of Americans not having college degrees, there's a lot of folks who are skilled and could be proficient at jobs that require a college degree needlessly. So we're working with Opportunity at Work. It's an incredible organization. They're trying to get people to what they call tear the paper ceiling so that these like incredible folks, they call them stars, they're skilled through alternative routes, they're qualified for these jobs. They just maybe couldn't afford a $200,000 college education. Maybe they were in the military. Maybe they learned on the job. And so I think, again, like bringing economic opportunity to people without college degrees is really important to us. And then I think the elephant in the room, especially, I don't know how many days now it launched, but chat GPT launched in the last week. And I think everyone is thinking about how chat GPT affects the future of work. You have folks on one side saying it's coming for your jobs. We thought AI was coming for blue collar jobs, but now people think, oh no, it is coming for white collar jobs first. And then there's other folks, and I'd put Reed in that bucket, who say, no, chat GPT can actually just enhance human potential and enhance human jobs. You already have Copilot, which is helping developers being able to code better and faster and teach them and have them learn the mistakes they were making. Soon there might be a co-pilot for every profession. There'll be an AI for lawyers, an AI for doctors, an AI for artists. But I think that we have to be really, we have to be really deliberate if we're going to build the future we want, because there are certainly pitfalls coming down, down the road as it comes to AI. AI could also be incredibly helpful as it relates to mental health. I think the possibilities are endless, but we're like, 
we're just, we're worried. <laughs> Definitely in the first inning. And Phil, going back to Project Healthy Minds and looking over, it's December 9th. I'm looking at my calendar. December 9th, 2023 is around the corner. What is your and your and the organization's imperatives, let's say, for the first half of 2023? One of the things interesting is this idea of how do you find tech talent that has worked in the tech industry that want people who actually want to switch over and use their talents, even if it's for a couple of years, and apply it to an issue that could be really close to heart. Really fascinating in this environment where there's a lot of layoffs in tech in particular, really fascinating time. So there's also a second piece to this equation. So one of the things that we've been really focused on the last couple of months is if you really want to meet people where they are, then one piece of this is thinking about creators and influencers, but an, but a slightly different frame on it is to just think about the content that people are consuming and how you show up for the content people are consuming in all its formats from traditional to new media. And starting probably about 12 weeks ago, mental health segments in the Today Show, now at the end of the segment, they say, if you need mental health services, go to projecthealthyminds.com, right? When Meghan Markle launched her newest podcast, Archetypes, we were the mental health partner on that. And so thinking about, you know, these are all different audiences. These are all different formats. Sometimes we're speaking to young people. Sometimes we're speaking to their parents. Sometimes we're speaking in a more corporate context. Sometimes we're speaking in a very irreverent context. And so figuring out, there's a whole body of work around how do you get into the mental health conversation for different audiences and in different contexts. So that's like a huge piece of what we're, of what we're thinking about. Aria, from your perspective at Do Something, were there any issues that are top of mind for you where you were able to collect a lot of data and aggregate data? Again, boil down the so what, now what for an outside organization, like a newspaper, or a journalist, a radio, wherever, that really helped, again, perpetuate the conversation or the issue that you and your team are championing? I think, again, the importance of data cannot be understated. My husband is a data scientist and used to work for the New York City Department of Public Health, Phil. So he has some very choice words to say about the lack of data, how clean it is, sort of everything you can do with it. I think one area where we were especially interested to do something, and I'm interested personally, was actually around voting and civic engagement at young people. Because even maybe less now, because you see the Greta Thunbergs of the world and youth activists, but everyone still thought that young people were apathetic and they thought that young people voted at lower rates than older people because they weren't interested. They were too busy with their avocado toast or their Twitch or whatever it might be. And we just looked at the messaging. And so it was like a combination of, of data and just like behavioral psychology. It's like the data around voter registration was like, hey, young people, there's a party going on. Everyone who's attending is 75. And all they're going to talk about is stuff that you don't care about and doesn't affect you. But the stuff that's really important to you in your future, they're not going to mention it. And it's like, obviously no young people are going to go to this. But if you actually look at the data, both implicit and explicit, I think it's also important. Like survey data has its place. But with Do Something, we could also see like, where did people click? What did they actually care about? Like they said they cared about this, but when they came to their website, the only thing they were clicking on was mental health or homelessness or whatever issue. And so when you get like, the power of data just makes you be able to be so much smarter. And it also helps you combat this like lazy thinking, which I think is ever present in any arena, but certainly the arena when you're talking about young people with all these stereotypes that are out there in the world. That's excellent. And I think in, in, in terms of, I know we're coming up on time, but just love to, for the listeners, who are, again, who are listening to this conversation and who are interested in mental health, as well as some of the issues that Aria, that you 
championed in your past life with, with Do Something and currently with Reed Hoffman. Where can people find those resources or find you on the internet? I'll start. Yeah, I tweet about most of the things I care about. So you can follow me at Ari Irene. But I would also really encourage you if you're in, interested in the future of work. Opportunity at Work is an incredible organization. And actually, so is Corey, which focuses on innovation in rural areas as it relates to the future of work. And I think like, we're all concerned about cities, not enough people care about rural areas. So I would just champion both of those two. Numbers. They can go to projecthealthyminds.com if you need mental health services, or you want to figure out how to get engaged. And of course, you can Follow me on Twitter and Phil Shermer. Excellent. Aria, Phil, thank you very much for a very, again, insight-driven, very impactful conversation. And again, we thank you very much for your time today.